All right, amen. Take your Bibles and turn John chapter 15, if you will. That's where we'll start. I do want to thank each and every one. You know, so many different ones come up and say that they're praying for me. You have no idea of how much that helps and what that means to me. February 19th, uh, fell on a The two-year anniversary of Joy's homegoing fell on a Sunday, and uh, Brother John Vagnon preached in the evening, I preached in the morning. It was nice to be able to preach in the morning because it keeps your mind off of those things, at least it helped me. In the evening, however, they, they, they had the group that sang one of the songs at the funeral. Uh, Brother Suresh read a letter about Joy, the fragrance of Christ that she was, then they showed the slide presentation, DVD presentation, uh, uh, <clears throat> right before John preached. <laughs> and uh, I am telling you, I am doing so much better than I was two years ago. It has been a journey. The eight years of cancer, Joy's homegoing, and now the two years that have followed have been unbelievable. I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. I have so much more to go, but I would not trade it for anything in the world. God's grace is sufficient. Speaking about books, Brother Jim had mentioned about some books. Right after the Lord took Joy home, someone sent me the book, Hind's Feet, on high places. Talk about a divine appointment when it comes to books. It really helped me understand the breaking process that God was bringing me through. Then Ian Thomas, Major Ian Thomas, uh, the, the indwelling life of Christ, all of him and all of us. You know that book, I tried to read it before and it just didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I picked it up in the breaking process and man did it come alive. They're short chapters. It's a devotional. They're short chapters. But I'm telling you, it will help you tremendously in the exchange life. The other book that I'm going to recommend that I'm going to really quote a lot, and I'm sorry, I know it's after lunch, and, and I am trusting God to meet with us for the particular truths that he wants us to get. I mean, every message has been right on. I mean, God is doing a work. But this is Evan Hopkins, the law of liberty. Now, the title of this message is so winning. It's not the exact title, but I'm going to paraphrase it this way. So winning is easy. Do you really believe that? How in the world did I pick that title? Well... The truth of the matter is this, Jesus said this, my yoke is, is that true? So there must be a way that it is. And if it's not easy, I'm missing something. Because he said it is, and I don't think he's exaggerating, I certainly know he's not lying, and my burden is light. 
God's commandments are not? Are they? No. If they are, I'm missing something. Now, what I want you to do with me, I have a little personal note here. I'm going to explain just a little bit as we, as we go. And uh, notice it says, over the past 40 years of my Christian life, I have gone soul winning on a weekly basis. Now, obviously, there are some weeks that I've missed. But for the most part, can you believe that I have been saved for 40 years? I was saved when I was two. And... Uh, <laughs> I was saved when I was 20 years old. It's, I'll be 60 years old this year. Can you believe it? I know you can't, but I just thought I'd tell you so it'd help you. <clears throat> so for those 40 years, I mean, I mean, almost as soon as I got saved, I was either going with somebody or preparing. I remember going soul winning that I did not know how to do it. You know how I went? I had God's simple plan of salvation. I'd knock on the door. I'd ask if I could read the track to them. I did not get very far at all, obviously. But God led me from step to step to step. So over 40 years, now when I say I go calling, almost all of that is from door to door. Now, for nine of those years, I witnessed from door to door for an hour every day with the exception of Sunday. From Monday through Saturday... I went at least an hour a day from door to door. Sometimes I went after, after midnight. Believe it or not, one time I went from 2 o'clock until 3 o'clock in the morning. It says, where did you go? The derelicts and, and, at the University of Michigan, they hang out. They're the street people. They hang out, and I tried to find one of them to witness to them. I missed one day of those nine years. Now... Having said that, I regret to say when I look back, I've seen little results compared to New Testament standards. I'm not saying there wasn't any results. But compared to what our, our standard is, the New Testament, I saw little results. What I'm presenting to you obviously is not fully experienced in my own life, for which I am truly sorry. I trust the Lord will bring us to the reality of these truths, that we, by the grace of God, may experience the power of His working through us in a much, much greater way. Now, let me just give you the sequence. Number one, we're going to talk about <clears throat> the Christ's life is the source of our power. Now that you've already heard many times, I'm going to try and just run quickly through it, just pointing out certain things. The second thing, which to me is the main thing, the second thing is the liberating of the will. This to me has been a tremendous help to me, and I have much farther to go in it, but it's wonderful. The second thing then is the effective soul winning. So let's look first of all at the fruit of his life. This is your John 15 passage. I do want to read this. And uh, I am going to read the, the 16 verses. Now, I, I'll tell you why later, but I want you to read it with me. Jesus said in verse 1, I am the true vine. My father's the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now you are clean 
The concept is now you are pruned through the word which I have given you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in vine, nor can you, uh, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide in me, or if a man abide not in me, is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. Now, I want you to see the subject of what he talks about in verse 9 through verse, I think it's 14. He says in verse 9, As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye my love. If you keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friend. It was verse 13. Now look at verses 14 and 15. Deals with friendship based on love. For ye are my friends, if you do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends, for all, uh, for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. Now look at verse 16. And what I'm just trying to say, and we'll look at this in a minute, the, the fruit of verse 16 is the result of the fruit of verses 1 through 8. Now he says, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he may give it you. Father, be with us. Lord, we recognize it's right after lunch. We recognize where this slot is. But Lord, you are able to overcome that. And that is what we're trusting you for. The time element I'm trusting you for. Your divine work in my life I'm trusting you for. The work in each one of our lives I'm trusting you for. Thank you that you can do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Now bless and guide and give wisdom, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's look at this. <clears throat> You've got the vine, the branch, and the fruit. Number one, notice the vine is the what? Now I am going to ask questions just because I think it's going to be helpful for you. So the vine is the what? It's the pot. Thank you. You're doing excellent so far. At least two of you. You're doing wonderful. <laughs> the vine is the power of his life. Now obviously Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let me review this particular illustration. I gave it last year. This is from The Normal Christian Life by Watchman Nee. One time he, visit, he visited an orchard. We asked the owner of the orchard, says, is this native stock? Is this the original stock? And he said, I would never waste my property on the original stock. These are grafted trees. He says, you see that tree right over there? That's what I call the father tree. If I left them in the original stock, he says, the fruit would be about the size of a raspberry. 
It had very thick skin and very large seeds. But the fruit of that is about the size of a plum. Very thin skin, very small trees. He says, well, how do you do it? He says, well, what I do is when it, the plant, the tree gets about this tall, I lop it off, cut a wedge in it, take a little bit of the father stock, graft it in, and look at the fruit. He said, how does it work? He says, I don't know. It just does. Now, what I'm trying to illustrate, it's not a perfect illustration, but imparted to each and every one is the power of his life. Do you know what that means? The Christian life is supernatural. That's it. The vine is the power of his life. Number two, the branch is the... Okay, good. Got two more. All right? It's the channel of his life. Now, I've got a question here, and I want you to think. This is obvious, but I want you to think. Is the fruit the product of the branch of the vine? Is the fruit the product of the branch or the vine? Never the branch. So it's essential. You understand that the branch does not bear fruit. The vine bears fruit. Fruit is not the product of, the, of my life. It's the product of his life. The branch is only the channel through which the vine produces fruit. Number three, the fruit is the manifestation of his life. Now, what I want you to understand is Christ's life is a hidden life. By what, now, it's a hidden life, you're going to see in Colossians chapter 3, obvious here, that Christ's life is a hidden life once the only way his life is manifest. When we, yeah. So Colossians 3, 3, or 3, 3 and 4, says ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life shall appear, that's the resurrection, then shall you also appear uh, with him in glory. Then it will be visible. Now it's hidden. Now, here's the thing that has been a challenge to me. I do not want people to see my life. I want people to see his life. Live through me, bearing the fruit of his life. When visitors come to church... I don't want them to see us. I want them to see him. When dads go home, when husbands go home, I want their families to see Christ manifest through them. He is everything. Now, here's an illustration. This has already been mentioned. John chapter 4, the woman at the well. But whosoever drinketh of this water shall be in him. The word well is the concept of a fountain. It's a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And the idea of springing is the concept of gushing. It's a fountain that gushes. In John chapter 7, we already looked at that. He that believeth on me, as the scriptures have said, out of his belly shall flow river. Rivers, streams, 
I'll tell you what's helped me the most. I didn't have this. And it's real. You can have a fountain. And the filling overflows rivers. The best things that ever helped me is when I admitted, Lord, I don't have that. Would you bring me to it? Now, the necessity of the vine. This is extremely important. I've got three onlys here. Only the fruit of his life glorifies the Father. Now, John 15, 8, we're going to take that in actually two sections, then have a third part. Here it is, my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. Is God glorified with my life or is God glorified by the fruit of his life? Right. It is not my life. So it is not my life that glorifies the Father. It's only uh, the fruit of his life will bring glory to the Father. So at the judgment seat of Christ, what, what reward am I going to get for that which I did for him in my own strength? Zip. The only thing that's going to be rewarded for all eternity is what he did through me. Everything I did for him in the flesh is going to be wood, hay, and stubble. It's going to be burned up. Only that which he does through me will be the gold, precious stone. And doesn't that make sense? Only his life is worthy of the reward of gold, silver, and precious stones. Note then, number two, I don't know if these numbers coincide with yours, but for me it's number two, only bearing the fruit of his life is true discipleship. How many of you have always thought, and maybe even still teach, that, that discipleship is the disciplined life? Here, discipleship is defined as the fruit-bearing life. It's not a disciplined life. Now, the fruit of his life will be disciplined. But it's not the self-disciplined life, it's the fruit-bearing life. It's not trying, it's not struggling. We heard that already. Number three, only through the power of his life can we meet the standard. I want to give you, actually it's three things, and fourth is the conclusion. Number one, what is the greatest commandment? Shall love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, with all thy strength, with thy soul. Now, I don't mean to be irreverent here, but how are you doing? What's the second? To love your neighbor how? What did Jesus say? Now you're right. Love your neighbor how? As I have loved you. That's a little different. He said a new commandment I give unto you. Love one another as I. I have loved you. I am to love you as Jesus has loved me. How am I doing? Do you know you're to love your wife as Jesus loved you? That's the standard. How am I ever going to do that? Now, notice the next one. Love who? Isn't that amazing? Love God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul. Love one another as I have loved you. Then it says, love your enemies. And what does that mean? Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them that despitefully uh, use you and persecute you. How are you doing loving your enemies? 
Don't you see it's impossible for me to do that outside of the power of his life? Only through the power of his life can I love God, love others, love my enemies, and the concept in Matthew 5, 48, that I can be perfect, perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And the concept there, I believe, based on the context, is being perfect in love. Perfect love casts out all fear. Now go to number C, at least in mine it's C. What is the product of the vine? Okay, what is this fruit? Now here's where we're probably going to disagree, but I ask you please just to hear me out for a second. Actually more than a second, probably quite a few seconds. I believe I used to teach that this fruit was souls. And I do believe it in product it is. I used to teach also it's every kind of fruit of the Christian life. And I'm not trying to deny that truth. But I'll tell you what I think based on the context. That's why we read it. I believe the fruit is love. And I'll tell you why. Notice next. God is love. Now look at 1 John 4.16. We have known and believed that God is love. I'm sorry, let me read that again. We have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Now let me ask you this, what's the hallmark of Christianity? What is everyone in the world to know us by? By this shall who? Isn't that nice? Everyone who comes into the church ought to see, you know what? These people love each other like I've never seen anyone love. It's supernatural. I've never seen it anywhere else. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples. Is that you have love one toward another. How do you experience God? Now I understand that we all have God and we understand that God always dwells in us. But how do we experience the indwelling? I'm not afraid of that word anymore because it's real. Look at John, 1 John 4.16, the last part. God is love. He that dwelleth in love, God dwelleth in him, and he and God in him. And we'll go into it, but John chapter 14 talks about keeping his commandments, loving God, and he will come and manifest himself to us. Now, do you notice I didn't choose the word that most people may choose, which was holiness? Now, you really can't separate love and holiness, but let me show you this. Which is the product? Does holiness produce love or does love produce holiness? Okay, thank you for that. Love produces holiness. Now let me read you a verse. You ready? You don't have it in your notes. Paul is writing to Timothy, uh, Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, and what he's doing is he's praying for them. Actually, as he's writing, he's mentioning it as a prayer. And the Lord make you to increase. The idea of increasing is filling up to fullness and abound, which is the overflow. I, I, uh, and the Lord make you increase and abound in love one toward another. And toward all men, even as you do toward, even as we do toward you. Now listen. To the end that he, God, may establish your hearts unblameable in 
holiness. When? Of course, even our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints, do you know that he's asking God right then to fill them to overflowing with love so that when they stand before Christ, they'll be established blameless in holiness. Their love is producing holiness. Okay, here's a good verse for all you men, husbands. Husbands, love your wives. What's the rest? Even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might what? Sanctify. What's sanctification? Holiness. Do you know how you sanctify your wives? You love them. Do you know how God sanctifies us? He loves us. I believe that the fruit here is referring to love. Now, number two, love is the first characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit. Obviously, Galatians 5, 23, the fruit of the Spirit is love and then all the rest. Now, you know fruit singular. I'm not teaching anything you don't know which means it's a cluster, it's a whole, it's an individual unit. I personally believe that love produces joy, peace, long-suffering, temperance, faith, meekness. At any rate, it heads the list of a single unit. Number three, I love this. This has really been a challenge to me. I help. Love is what makes Christian service effective. Now, you know this, but let's read it. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not charity, I become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith so that I can remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity or love, it profits me nothing. Let me ask you something. If I speak to you and I'm not motivated by love, what's it going to be? noise. If I go witnessing and I do not go witnessing in love, what's it going to be? Noise. If I have the gift of prophecy, understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I don't have love, what's it profit? I want you to say it. Nothing. If I have faith, that I can remove mountains and I don't have love, what benefit? Go ahead. Nothing. The greatest sacrifice, the greatest dedication, if I give everything and I give my body, if I give all my possessions and I give my body to be burned, if it's not motivated by love, what benefit is it? Absolutely zero. Isn't that amazing? Do you know all of us would covet every one of these things? Do you know all of those things, even together, if it's not motivated by love at the judgment seat of Christ, it's going to be zip. I don't, man, oh man. Now, let's go to this. I'm going to do a positive and then a negative. This is disregarding the vine. If I'm not bearing supernatural fruit, what am I bearing? Superficial fruit. It's one or the other. Either it's supernatural or it's superficial. Now, you, I, 
I'm not going to speak of you. I'm going to speak of me. I have to know what my life is when it's super. I need to know my life if it's supernatural. I need to know if it's superficial. I've got to know that. 2 Timothy 3.5 says, Having a form of godliness, but denying that power thereof. Now, you know, you have, who, referring to Jesus Christ, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant. Same word. That form, based on the Greek word, is talking about an inner essence within manifesting itself without. This word for form is a different word. It means an outward form with no real essence. So this is what uh, A.T. Robertson says. It says, the outward shape without the reality, it's a form of godliness. The form of godliness is an outward appearance of Christ-likeness, but it's not the real thing, it's artificial. Then denying the power thereof, any godliness that denies the power of his life, it's not the product of his life, it's a mere outward form. And what I want you to understand is that if I'm not abiding in Christ, if he's not living his life through me, my life then is not supernatural, it's superficial, it's artificial, it's not real. Now I want you to, so, I, and I wish I, I don't really want to take the time to go into great detail, and I'm, I'm afraid you may misunderstand me here, but I want you to note the, these two concepts. One is manufactured fruit. The Christian life can be a mere outward form of rules or standards rather than the fruit of his holy life. You know, there's a big difference as a pastor between shepherding and driving cattle. I have for 30 years driven cattle. Now, the concept of driving cattle is you, you force them into a corral. Now, when cattle are in a corral, where do they want to be? They're in the confines of a corral, but in their heart, where do they want to be? Absolutely. You know what a shepherd does? He knows his sheep. And do you know his sheep know him? And they hear his voice. And they follow. It's different. Now you say, have you said this to your people? I say it all the time. Have you ever asked them to forgive me? Or have you ever asked them to forgive you? Absolutely publicly you say why not because I want the power of God and I do want the power of God because I've been wrong it's not been right next point Christian service can be our efforts to accomplish something for God rather than trusting the power of God or the power of his life to work through us and others doing for him rather than him doing through us. Now, I want you to understand something, and I, I, I'm trusting God to give me wisdom. I have been selfish, and I have been proud. You see, have you told them that? Absolutely. I don't know what all I've asked them to forgive me for, but I sure have unloaded the truck. 
Here's the way I explain it. In fact, I did this about two Sundays ago. I said, here's the way I've seen my last years of ministry, and I don't know how far to go back, and I'm not saying nothing good was ever accomplished, but here's the way I see it. See, the Christian life is like a river. This river is a wider river than you can swim. It's a deeper river than you can ever wade across, and it's a rushing river that you could ever, with the best strength that you have, ever make it across. Now, this is the victory side of the river, and this is the, the fault side of the river where people need to get across to victory. Guess where I put myself? I'm the victory side. Guess where I put everyone else? I'm the loser side. Guess what I did? Hey, get over here! What's wrong with you? How many times have I got to mention this and preach this? Why are you still over there? Hey, get where over here! When I'm not over there, I said, folks, I have been wrong. Do you know where I am now? I'm over here with them. And do you know what? I know better than they are. You know what God's helped me see? I'm no better than Rahab the harlot. I'm even no better than Judas Iscariot, but by the grace of God. I'm no better than anyone. I'm certainly not any better than them. But you know what we're doing now? Is we're through the power of his life coming across the river. I have wanted them to do good things. And even those good things would glorify the Lord. But I don't think my motive was to glorify the Lord as much as it helped me feel better when they did right things. It's called selfishness. Now, we were at a prayer meeting before the Holiness Conference, and on the counter they had, I think it was an apple and a pear, an apple and a pear. And I looked at them and I thought, wow, we were fasting. Those really look good. And I went over to, I said, I wonder if these are real. And I grabbed one and it was artificial. Now, I could tell by the weight. Suppose I couldn't tell and I took a bite out of artificial fruit. What would I do? Do you know the artificial of my life is going to be spit out? People who experience a superficial life, people who experience an artificial life, they're going to... As a pastor, as a dad, as a husband, as a soul winner, people spit artificial fruit out. It doesn't work. Only the fruit of his life. Counterfeit victory. Here I, I have a, a quote. Uh, Carnific victory, by the way, this is by Trumbull. Brother Jim mentioned this. It's the idea that you appear to be something on the outside when in reality you're different on the inside. He says here, he says, uh, victory is not fighting down your wrong feelings. That is counterfeit victory. It is not concealing your wrong fi- uh, feelings. That's counterfeit. Yet how many of us have supposed that victory is simply keeping wrong feelings from expressing themselves? And he goes into an illustration, but, but let, me, uh, let me go into that. He talks about this young Christian missionary. She's a very strong-willed woman. She wasn't Rosalind Goldforth. This is another, another lady, another missionary lady. These three veteran missionaries who had gotten away, they did not see the power of God in their lives. They got away, they prayed and fasted, came back and shared with her the spiritual truths, the exchanged life. 
She experienced victory for three months, but she waited to see if it was real before she wrote them back and told them what she was experiencing in her life. And he talks about that in this, in this quote. She said to these veteran, missionary, veteran missionaries who explained to her the exchange life, do you know that for three months now that uh, now I not only not once slammed the door in the face of these servants that used to get on my nerves so, but I haven't even wanted to once in three months. Now he explains that was a miracle. That was victory. It is not a miracle to go, uh, to go without slamming the door for three months. We can put our hands behind our back, set our teeth, and not slam the door. But would it be a miracle for you to go three months without ever once feeling within your heart the angry surge of irritation, impatience, unlove? That, or, or unlove, that would make it a relief to slam the door or give expression in some way to your feelings. We know that no effort of our own can possibly bring such a miracle to pass. The taking away of our hearts of even the want to of sinful desires. I want to share another confession with you. Do you know, and I don't know how many years this has gone on, that I have been irritated with the faults of my people. Now, I want you to understand there's a difference between being grieved and irritated. S.D. Gordon, and I just saw this, S.D. Gordon pointed out that grief demands love. The only way you can really grieve for people is if it's an expression that you love them. Irritation was an expression that I didn't love them. But I pretended not to be irritated. Now, let me ask you something. When you're irritated, but you're pretending not to be, how many people have you helped? Have you ever tried not to be irritated with your child when he's done something, but you're pretending, though you're irritated on the inside? How much has that really helped them, your wife, my people? See, I'm over on the victory side telling these guys to get over here, and when they're not coming over here, I get what? Yeah, what's wrong with them? It wasn't them. It was me. I had the problem. I had the two-by-four blocking my vision that I couldn't see clear to remove the splinter in their eye. Here's a caution. The danger of this kind of counterfeit Christian the, the danger of this kind of counterfeit Christian life is that it becomes a breeding ground for sinful desires that in time can bear wicked fruit. What's breeding underneath our outward Christian activity? Now, you don't have this in your notes. How many pastors have bad attitudes, harshness, irritability, frustration, compromise in their hearts? Meanness, critical spirit, critical words, disrespect, arrogance, unkindness, impatience, selfishness, unthankfulness, lust, discouragement, and much, much more. Now, to be honest with you, we can hide it from our people, but where does it come out? In the home. 
My wife knew me better than anyone knew me. God knew me best. Your kids know you better than anyone. All right? I'm sorry. I'm really not sorry, but it sounds good, doesn't it? See, that's being fake right there. I just, just caught it. Roman number number two, liberating the will. Read these three verses with me, if you will. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Now, I want you to get the word, obviously, we're talking about is liberty. What's another word for liberty? It would be called freedom, all right? Now, I want to give you, before we get into this, and I'm going to, I am sorry about this. I'm, I, I, I wish I could, honestly, I wish I could do this a different way. I don't know how to do it a different way. I'm just trusting God to, to meet with us in this particular section. In which scenario or in which situation would you say that a person's will has the most freedom? When they're doing what they want to do or when they're doing what they don't want to do? Did you get me yet? Let me say it again. In which situation would a person be the most free? When they're doing what they don't want to do or when they're doing what they want to do? Let me illustrate. Let's suppose you've got two people here and they're working jobs. This person is working this job and he does not like his job. He hates it. This person's working a job and he just loves his job. He enjoys it. Which one is the most free? Isn't that interesting? Now look at this definition. It's a general definition, but liberty is the freedom to do what you like. Now look at this explanation. Every person develops a desire for certain things. These desires influence and control the will. We see the evidence of this as people generally do what they like. Desire then liberates the will because the will becomes free when it can do what it likes. Not only is the will liberated by desire, but we also find it easy to do what we like. Now look at this illustration. For example, people go to football games. This is good for you guys with the Green Bay Packers. They dress in the weirdest way and sit in cold, wet weather for hours. You sports people, deer hunters sit in the cold all morning just to see a deer, and when they don't see any, they do it all over again the next morning. <laughs> now think about this. People will sit for hours in anticipation of just catching a fish. Does this sound ridiculous? A fish. You know, go to Cabela's or go to um, Bass Pro, thousands of dollars on boats and reels and lures and, and, and all that stuff. To what? To catch a... Go ahead, say it. Fish? fish? Wow. All right, ladies. I didn't leave you out. Ladies get up early Saturday morning just to be the first one at a garage sale. They also go to the mall and shop for hours without buying one thing. <laughs> and you say, well, preacher, people do do things they don't want to do. But while they're doing things they don't want to do, they're wishing they were doing things they wanted to do. Have you seen the bumper sticker, I'd rather be fishing? I'd rather be hunting. I'd rather be sailing. I'd rather be garage sailing. 
Now, why do people sacrifice to do these things? Because it's what they like. When people are placed in the environment of their desire, their will is liberated, and they find even difficult tasks to be easy. Now, let's get into the concept of Christian liberty. We have a problem that we need to deal with. The problem with man is that his desires are not pure. Due to the Adamic nature, his desires, being selfish and sinful by nature, make his will a slave to those desires. Therefore, his will is not free to do what is right, and it needs to be liberated. What I'm saying is this. Why do people do wrong? Because they want to. The desire so dominates the will that they do what they like, and due to the Adamic nature, they like to do what's wrong. Now notice this quote under Christian liberty. It is a remark of a thoughtful preacher that the weakness of human actions may be traced to the supremacy of passion, desire. That the passions are too strong and carry away the will with them so that the will as a regulative force in a man is crippled. I don't know if this is the best illustration, but this is the illustration I want to run through with you. I'm going to take a young man. I'm going to say he's a good young man. I think you'll understand this in the process of our conversation. I'm going to take a good young lady. What is one of the worldly problems of a young man? Christian. I know we can say lust, and probably is true, but I'm going to go into the realm of music. And what is the problem from the world's perspective? What's the problem with young ladies? Fashion. Now, I'm not trying to get into any details, but we, I think we all would agree with this. There's right music and wrong music, and there's right fashion, and there's wrong fashion. Now, this particular man loves the wrong music, and this particular woman loves the wrong fashion. Now, just think a minute with me. Now, don't, don't, anyway, just think. Why can't he give up his music, and why can't she give up her fashion? They like it. They love it. Even when they're dressed different on the outside, it's their desire to be dressed different on the inside. Even though he may be checked to listen to his right music, he's still in his heart wanting to listen to the wrong music. That's their desire. And that desire dominates their will. Now let's suppose this. They come to church. They hear a message on music, on dress, and they're convicted. And they know they're wrong. I have a question for you. Is the conscience strong enough to cause them to change? No. You know what? You're guilty about certain things, and do you change? No. Because desire is stronger than the knowledge of knowing something's wrong. Now, here's a quote. Man's will by nature is not free. It's a slave of desire. If the passions are evil, his will is the victim of a sinful tyranny. There may be light and knowledge without liberty. He may see the evil and know that that it is his duty to avoid it, and yet he may be drawn to yield to it because of the pleasure that is more or less blended to it. So here's this man, here's this woman, 
Even though they know it's wrong to do what they're doing, they have the desire to do it. The question is, what do they need? Their will needs to be liberated. I want you to note this statement. The human will does not need strengthening. It needs liberating. Now let me stop there for a minute. How many of you have counseled a person who's having a problem of stopping something and you've said you just have to try harder? Come on, what's wrong with you? You need character. I'm over here on the victory side saying, hey, get over here, when I've got the same problems. Maybe not in those areas, but in different areas. The will does not need strengthening, it needs liberty, uh, liberating. Liberty is not just doing good things, but taking pleasure in doing them. Man's desires need to be purified, changed in a positive way, purified, so he desires what God desires. When the desires are purified, his will is set free. He not only delights in the things of God, but he delights to do them. Then he is free to do what he likes, and he likes to do the will of God. Now, in other words, if this young man, this young lady, if their wills were liberated through the, in other words, if their desires were changed, their will would be free. I don't need that wrong, you say. I don't want that wrong. Why? Because their desires have been changed. And when you change the desires, it frees the will to choose right. Now, let me give you an illustration. 1 Timothy 3.1. This is a truth saying. If a man desire the office of bishop, he desireth a good work. Now, I think most of you know this. Do you know the word desire here? There's two words that's translated desire in the English, but they're two different Greek words. The first Greek word is the concept of to aspire towards. It literally means to reach after. The second Greek word is the Greek word epithumios. What is that word translated most in the Bible? Epithus. Thus, fire. Epi, intense fire. It's translated lust. But here it's translated in a positive lust, or a positive, intense desire or passion. When a person has the intense desire to be a bishop, he's going to do, he's going to aspire, he's going to reach after it. When the desire's changed, purified, you're free to do. Because you do what you like. Now, What's the element that liberates the will? I like this. Now, you know, <clears throat> he uses this, this concept. He uses the concept of animals. Animals in their native environment are free. In other words, when, when animals are placed in their native environment, they're free. And he just notice what he says. The bird is free where? In the air. And the fish in the water. Take either of them out of the element, and its liberty is gone. So what's the element that God places in us that purifies or changes our desires that we're free to do? Now notice this next quote. The element in which the will finds its freedom is the love of God. 
The glorified spirits, referring to those in heaven, are free and they do what they like. Do you think Joy in heaven right now is struggling to do right? Do you think she's in heaven doing right but not wanting to? She's free. Why? Her desires are pure now. I love it. And so, just as in proportion as man's affections are purified and he delights in the things God delights in, he finds his freedom to, in doing as he likes. Whatever therefore purifies his desires also liberates his will. To set the will free, it follows it must be brought into the atmosphere of divine love. Now, I left this little quote. If you forget everything that I'm saying, remember this quote. Notice it says, If faith makes all things possible, love makes all things easy. Do you have a hard time doing what you love? Think of something you really like to do, you really love to do, and obviously, let's say it's a good thing. How many of you love golf? Nobody's going to admit it. Okay. <clears throat> Why do pastors say they're out visiting the greens? Or they name their motorcycle visitation. He's out on visitation. You know what? You're free when you can do what you like. Isn't it amazing that God, by his love, can purify my desires that I can actually enjoy what he enjoys? Think of that lady. Whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now it's their desire, and the choice becomes easy. Now it's the man's desire because the love of God. Now it's easy. Now, let's look at divine love as a gift. I'm not going to read through these quotes because I, I really want to get to the other part. I want you to see a distinction between divine love as revealed and divine love as imparted as a gift. I, the importance that I'm honest where I am about my artificial fruit, my Christian bondage and duty. reason I need to be honest there because until I'm honest with God to where I really am, and come to God for, with forgiveness and cleansing through his blood, he will never fill me with his love to purify my desires. You're blocking the channel. Honesty with transparency cl clears the channel, and when a channel is cleared and cleansed, God fills. And he fills it with his love. Number one, he reveals it to you. Now, the revealing of the love of God is where you see, experience the manifestation of his love for you. That's called revival, probably personal revival. Revive thy people, uh, uh, revive us again that thy people may rejoice in you. Now, let me ask you something. Here's a good test to see if you're revived. Do you enjoy God more than anything else in the world? Do you know you can Because when you're clean, he'll reveal his love and he'll become the most wonderful Savior, Father, the Holy Spirit, your friend. 
he becomes altogether lovely. But I want you to understand the distinction here. It's not just that God's love is revealed, but it's also imparted. There's a difference between revealed and imparted. Imparted means that it becomes a grace and a power within you. So when God's love is imparted to me or given to me as a gift, it enables me then to love him. I do not have the power to love him, love the Lord thy God with all thy strength, with all thy mind, with all thy soul. But if he imparts his love to me, I can love him. And in loving him, that love purifies my desires, that I desire what God desires. It liberates my will. I want to do what he wants me to do. That love imparted as a gift. Now I can love people like I never loved them before. I can love them with their faults, not wait until they overcome their faults. I can love lost people no matter how they look or what they're doing. Everything changes. How do you get it? Of course, it's the fruit of the Spirit. Divine love is produced by the Holy Spirit. The medium of this transfusion of divine love in the heart is the Holy Spirit. He himself first enters into the soul and then from within makes known to us God's love and two things happen. We realize God loves us and then it communicates and communicates it, that love, as a power molding our emotions, purposes, and actions. The next quote would be this. Now let us suppose such a one is brought under the power of of a fuller, deeper work of the Holy Spirit. Let us suppose that divine love sanctifies. Do you see what he just said? Divine love sanctifies his desires, makes his desires holy. What then? A complete change takes place in his whole life because he begins to love the right and delights in acknowledging its excellence. He now finds it easy to do it. He begins to like what God commands. And it's never hard to do what one likes. Then he finds the truth in his own experience of those words. His commandments are not grievous. And there you have the two commandments we started out with. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. His commandments are not grievous. And take my yoke upon you and learn of me. And I, for I am meek and lowly in heart. You shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'm going to have, there's another section dealing with duty and bondage. I will be able to finish. I know you don't think so. You're doing what I'm doing. You're looking ahead. How many more pages does he have to go? (laughs) And is he ever going to make it? All right. I probably won't, but I'm going to say that I will. Let me ask you a question now. This is the essence. I can sum up really the soul winning effectiveness in just very, very short way. I want to ask you something now. Is your Christian service, your Christian life, is it what you want to do or is it what you have to do? Is it a joy or is it a duty? Is it a life of blessed freedom or a life of bitter bondage? Can you just ask the Lord to help you right now to answer those questions. I'm going to deal with the negative side of liberty. God's love imparted purifies my desires. When I desire what God desires, my will is liberated and free to do. Here's the converse. Now notice this next statement. This is liberty versus self-discipline. You've got Christian liberty versus self-discipline, duty, and bondage. 
I'm going to just quickly go through this. Is Christian liberty the discipline of doing right even though we do not want to do it? Suppose someone says that Christians should choose to do what is right. And let's suppose a person, uh, person's will is strong enough to suppress the power of desire in order to do right. Now here's the question. Is Christian liberty merely the discipline of doing right when we don't want to? Is that the Christian life? Is the Christian life that I'm always doing what I need to do, what's right to do, even though I don't want to? Wouldn't that be a terrible Christian life? Suppose that the will is strengthened and that by dint of high sense of duty, the man is enabled to rise superior to the power of his passion. In other words, he has discipline over his desires. Shall we have in such a one an example of true liberty? Surely not. What the will needs in the first place is not strengthening, but liberating. Now let me ask you this question. Did Jesus live his entire Christian life here on earth doing what he didn't want to do? When he said, I always do those things which please the Father because he had to and not because he, did, and not because he wanted to? Do you know there's liberty? In God imparting his love. Now, let's go to soul winning. Now, let me ask you this question. Are we to go soul winning for conscious only? Now, what I mean by that is this. Should we go soul winning even though we don't want to? Now, all of God's people are going to say, we should go soul winning even though we don't want to. All right? That's for conscious alone. Is that the best that it gets? I hope not. Notice this next quote. The criterion of the highest and perfect moral state of mind is pleasure. When good acts are not only done, but when we take pleasure in doing them, we are certainly bound to do them, whether we like it or not. And obedience for conscience sake which is carried out against inclination or desire, is deserving of all praise and constantly urged upon us in Scripture. But it is still an inferior moral state compared with that in which the inclinations or desires themselves are on the side of good. For looking into the real nature of the case, we cannot but call it a state of servitude when a man's affections do not go along with his work, but he submits to duty as a yoke which a superior power law impresses upon him, even though the law be revealed to him through his conscience. Now, let me give you an illustration of this. Let's suppose I'm going soul winning because I need to obey God. My conscience has convinced me that it's right for me to go, that I'm commanded to go, but I don't want to. I get into the car and I go to a particular house and I pray something like this. Lord, Would you please let this person not be home? (laughs) But Because I don't really want to do this. But if he is home, would you please help me? I go to the door. Oh, no, they're home. Now, you will never do this. They come to the door, and you say, how do you do? My name is Gary Hurth. I'm from Ann Arbor Baptist Church, and I don't really want to be here. I'm here because it's right to do. Can I tell you about Jesus Christ? 
Now let me ask you something. How many people go based on conscience alone? What about duty? Notice this next quote. The truth, the truth must be admitted that many who belong visibly to the dispensation of the Spirit are still inwardly under the law in this sense, that their inclinations, their desires are not yet on the side of God's service, and that if they perform their duty in any degree, it is only in obedience to a law of the penalties of which they stand in just and proper fear, but not on the spiritual principle of love. Now, uh, I go soul winning because I'm afraid if I don't go soul winning, something bad will happen to me. So again, I go up to this door, hoping no one's home, and I knock on the door and somebody comes to the door and I say, I want you to know that I'm here because if I didn't come, something bad's going to happen to me. <laughs> Would you like to know about Jesus? <laughs> now, who is going to be impressed? And let me just do this. Duty is obedience without joy. We can, we can conceive of a case in which the will is strong and the passions are held under control. And what do you have? You have a life of outward abstinence from evil and of conformity to good, but not a life of joy and liberty. How many people go soul winning and they don't enjoy it? Look at liberty versus bondage. The force of conscience and the power of the will may be sufficient in many instances to keep the passions under restraint. So that in the main, there is an absence of our transgression, and it may be a good deal of zeal and activity in working for God, but oh, what a sense of strain and perpetual bondage within. Christ's yoke is felt to be constantly pressing. It is not found to be easy, nor is burden light. How many look forward, if your visitation's on Monday or if it's on Thursday, how many people think, oh no. I have to go. I'll be guilty if I don't and something bad might happen to me, so I'm going to go anyways. How long are you going to be a soul winner when you're in bondage to wrong desires? To be honest with you, many of us don't because it's a bondage. But it doesn't have to be. God imparts his love. He transforms your desires. You're free to go because you want to and you enjoy it and now you communicate his love through you. Jump down now to the examination. I've got another examination here. The question was, what is... Now let me ask you this question in light of soul winning. Is your Christian service now let me put in here, is your soul winning what you want to do or what you have to do? Is it a joy or is it a duty? Is it a life of blessed freedom or a life of bitter bondage? Now, I have here something else, and I, I'm going to go to effective soul winning because I'm, I can close it up. But let me ask you this. You know what I do? I'm very good in deceiving myself. I'm very good at pretending I'm better than what I really am. So in other words, if I hear a message like this, and you were to ask me, oh yeah, I, I enjoy going so winning. I'm not going to admit I don't. You know, I'd be a bad pastor if I admitted I wasn't. 
Can I ask you to do this? Would you ask your wife how she views your Christian life? Better yet, would you ask your children how they view your Christian life? I think you may. You know, people always see me differently than what I am. Now, let me say this. It's very hard for us to see ourselves the way others see us. It's impossible for us to see ourselves the way he sees us. That's a miracle. When you can be honest and transparent, God has done a miracle in your life. And when you're clean, he can fill and impart his love purifies your desires and you delight in what he delights in and you find it's easy to do now let's go to the last one I'm going to close quickly on this love always finds a way effective soul winning now so in other words it's the power of his life that life first works in me by purifying my desires so I desire what God desires and now my will is free to do. So when you love souls, guess what? You're going to find a way. Do you know we find ways not to go? Oh, it's cold. It's dark. It's going to storm. Nobody's home on this time of night. How many excuses I have not to go. Love finds a way. Now, you have the song here. I won't read that. God's love found a way. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Savior found a way. The love of Christ constraineth us. Because we thus judge if one died for all, then we're all done, dead. Holy Spirit found a way. Can I stop here for a second? How does the Holy Spirit find a way to demonstrate his love for the lost? God did it by giving his son. Jesus did it by giving his life. How does the Holy Spirit do it? By giving God's love to us so he can love others through us. The fruit of the Spirit is you got it. He's so desiring to impart the love of God to us to purify our desires, to liberate our will, that we will find ways to go. Here's some illustrations. Some of those under, who went to China under, under Hudson Taylor went knowing they would probably never come again. David Livingston went into the interior regions of Africa where no white man had ever gone to give the gospel. You have David Brainerd. You know he died at 29 because of the hardships of trying to get the gospel to the American Indians, mainly in Pennsylvania. Do you know Moravian missionaries? Do you know that when they tried to witness to slaves, they couldn't find a way? They found it. They sold themselves into slavery so they could witness to slaves. Well, what did that? It wasn't them. Love finds a way. Do you know where they buried David Brainerd's heart when he died? In Africa. His body's buried in the Westminster Abbey. Why'd they bury his heart? Because it was an expression of God's heart. Love draws. Do you know God does not want to force people into salvation? God would rather deliver than destroy. And God would rather win people than force people. And I, if I be lifted up, I will draw men unto me. The goodness of God leadeth to repentance. 
that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. He sendeth the rain on the just and the unjust. God is always demonstrating his love, revealing his love, because it's his love that draws people. How did Christ win his bride? Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. How'd you win your wife's heart? Did you force her to marry you? Did you trick her into marrying you? Did you threaten her so she would marry you? No, you won her by demonstrating your love. Now, some of you may have to do it some other way. God wants to love people through you. It wins. Now you say, well, preacher, you've got to preach on hell. Yes, D.L. Moody preached on hell, but there was never a time, I'm told, that he didn't preach on hell, that he didn't have tears in his eyes. He loved, not with his love, but through God's love. Let me give you one quick illustration here and then. Oh, let me just mention this real quickly. Love compels, love wins, and love produces fruit that remains. Dr. John Rice used to say the fruit of an apple tree is not apples, but another fruit-bearing tree. Here's your John 15, 16. He have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain. Do you know what the power of God's love flowing through me as a channel does? It wins abiding fruit, when they see God's love through us, they then receive Christ and they abide in him and become a channel of his love to others. Could you see that? Love of God becoming so real to me that it wins others to him. The love of God becomes so real to them that they want to be a channel of that love that others want to be a channel of that love. You kind of find out that by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, that you have love one toward another. Now let me mention this. I'll just give this as an illustration, then we will close. My, <clears throat> I, was, I, was a, I was a rebel as a, as a child. Now I didn't think I was a rebel, but I was a rebel. I did all kinds of things behind my mom and dad's back, but I didn't think I was a rebel, but I was a rebel. I got saved. My whole life changed. And what I did for the first few years of my Christian life is I tried to force my parents to get saved. If I told you what I did, you'd be embarrassed for me. And I would be embarrassed again for what I did. Did my parents see anything different in me? Now they saw that instead of being a rebel doing bad things, now he's a forceful Christian doing good things. It's the same Gary. Needless to say, they did not get saved. I went to a revival meeting, and God dealt with me in two areas. Number one, to go home to my parents and tell them how much I have been wrong. And number two, to tell them that I loved them. I remember going home, and Mom and Dad had their perspective chairs. I sat down, they sat down, I pulled up an ottoman, sat down, and I explained everything I did before I was saved that dishonored them. And I said, would you forgive me? They didn't know what to say because I had never done that before. 
ever said I'm sorry. Then I told them that I loved them. That was hard. I did it the most chicken way you could do it. As I was leaving the door, after I'd passed the threshold, I said, I love you, and was gone. (laughs) Then I was able to stop and look at them and say, I love you. They didn't know what to say. They ended up saying, we too, we too. We love you too. They saw something different in me. They quit seeing Gary. They saw Christ loving them through a channel. You know what happened? Of course, my mom and dad, they got saved. I remember one time I was out on the campus. It's not a huge illustration, but this was huge to me. I was out on campus. It was a Thursday afternoon. It was cold. It was drizzly, and I did not want to be there. I did not have God's love imparted to me at that time. And I remember handing out a track, and a person looked at me, turned up their nose, and walked away, and another person just, nah. And I says, Lord, what's wrong? You know what God told me? It's not them. It's you. I says, you're right. I asked God to forgive me and cleanse me and to fill me a smile came on my face. And I said, hey, can I give you something to read? They said, sure. I mean, I just started, now one person, there may be more than one, but I remember this one particularly, there was only a few that refused it. This person said, no, thank you. People listened to the gospel. No one got saved. It was different. Now, I have to read this. This is the conclusion. Over the years, I have tried to make people go soul winning. You wouldn't think of me to be a forceful person, but I am. Joy would know. Over the years, I've tried to make people soul winner, uh, go soul winning. I use standards. If a person wasn't out on visit, and I'm not against any of these things, but, but hear me out, please, just for a second. If people wasn't out on visitation, they couldn't be used in the church. I used guilt. I preached that if a person wasn't out on visitation, they were disobedient to the Great Commission and the cause of people going to hell. I used fear. I implied if that a person wasn't out on visitation, something bad might happen to them. Now, here's the results. Many came for a while, but they didn't continue. Others came because they knew it was right to do, but they did it out of duty. A good number developed... The habit of coming, but you could tell they didn't enjoy it. The results of souls being saved and continuing for the Lord was sparse at best. I know that teaching these things in a right way is not necessarily wrong. I'm not trying to imply that it is. But for me, there was something missing that made it very wrong. I was missing the power of his life that enables and the manifestation of his love that wins others. God wants us to become a channel of his love that draws others to the Savior. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not charity, I become a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal, speaking with no results. Now, can I help you I think we need to break, don't you, Pastor Wayne? Yeah.
Can I just mention this? S.D. Gordon talked about this particular Colorado town. It was a very small town, and they, you know, you know, Colorado needs more than more than rainfall because there's not enough rain. Well, somebody went up the mountain and found this found this lake of cool, clear water. And they ran a pipeline down to this little town, and it became a boom town. I mean, people just came from everywhere to come and live here. Several years later, the ladies got up in the morning to turn on the faucets and no, no water. Nothing came out. They checked the pipeline. They went up to the reservoir. The reservoir was full. People started leaving. As Esty Gordon puts it, grass started growing in the streets. Nobody, nobody stayed but a few people. One of the officials got a little note. It was in poor English and bad spelling. And it said that somebody had stuck a rag in the pipe. They went up and investigated the pipe. And sure enough, about six feet down, they found this rag. They pulled it out, and guess what happened? The water flowed. Now, I want you to understand. I don't know what you understood, and I don't know how clear I was. The reservoir's already there. It's full. Rivers. Fountains. There's only one thing stopping it. A clog. It only takes a clog. I love what Brother Dave Young said. Many times we don't see results because God's dealing with us. There's a clog that needs to be removed. I don't know what it is in your life, but he does. Let him show you. Father, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.